If you didn't know it, I love being a preacher for lots of reasons. Uh, some might suggest it's primarily because uh, it's only a one-day-a-week job. Uh, <laughs> but most of you know that's not quite true. Um, there is. What was that, Dixie? <laughs> one hour? Is that what you said? Oh, two. Okay. All right. All right. Well, in, in some ways, the, the job is, is, is a real blessing in its flexibility. Uh, it's not a nine-to-five job. Sometimes it's more like a 24-7 job without a designated day off. But being on call 24-7 also means when no one's calling and you're caught up on what needs to be done, you have some free time. And I do enjoy my free time. I've never tried to hide that from anyone. Time to read, time now to attend my grandkids' events, time to work out at the Fit Club, time to fish. Um, my life is very full in every respect, and I'm very, very grateful for that. I also enjoy the variety of responsibilities uh, that come with the job. You know, one day you're officiating at a wedding or a funeral, and the next you're setting up for Bible study or cleaning the baptistry. Jake's not here. He needs to be in. Is he in there? Oh, well, okay. We have to tell him this, because I had to laugh several years ago when uh, Jake told his mom he wanted to be a janitor when he grew up. And when she questioned him further, he said, you know, a janitor, like Rick. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Jake had seen me working around the church and figured that's what I did all week. Uh, the funny thing is that if he came during the week now, he might actually see a preacher working as a janitor because Mark and Tina have officially taken on that responsibility. But I doubt that many would think of a minister as a janitor. But there are a lot of varying opinions about what a minister's job <laughs> really is. I'm sure some see him as a salesman trying to sell people on Jesus. Uh, others probably consider him an entertainer of sorts, someone who makes people laugh and cry and feel good or feel bad if needed, um, maybe spiritually entertaining or uplifting them on Sunday mornings. Others might think of him as a CEO running a religious business you know, keeping things going at church. And some, hopefully, think of him as a teacher, teaching them the Word of God. And obviously, if I had to pick one, I'd pick that one. But none of them are mentioned by Paul when he encourages Timothy to be a good minister. He doesn't say any of these things. Instead, he compares those in ministry to soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Let's see what he has to say. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. Suffer hard now again, he's writing to Timothy. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, 
If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Paul challenged Timothy with images of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And then he ended with an admonition. He said, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul wanted Timothy to think about what he had just said and how it related to his responsibilities as a minister. And since, to some degree, all of us are in the ministry, I believe he would have all of us think of ourselves as soldiers, athletes, and farmers, beginning with soldiers. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul thought of himself as a soldier of Jesus Christ. He wasn't hesitant to use a military analogy, and I don't think he would be embarrassed to sing Onward Christian Soldiers, which has been taken out of most hymnals. He referred to Epaphroditus and Archippus as fellow soldiers, and he wanted Timothy to think of himself as a soldier as well. He saw qualities in soldiers that needed to be in those committed to ministry. And the first quality he mentioned was a soldier's willingness to suffer hardship, as was Paul. He was willing to suffer hardship, and he expected all those in ministry to be willing to do so as well. Now, they may not have to endure the beatings, lashings, stonings, shipwrecks, and other physical hardships he had to endure and listed in 2 Corinthians 11. But they would certainly have to share in the hardship that he mentioned at the end of that list. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If you're going to minister to others, if you're willing to invest yourself in their lives, you better expect to share in their hardships. You better be ready to face crises on a regular basis. Many years ago, ministers were invited by Leadership Magazine to respond to the question, what has been the worst crisis you've had in your ministry? Now, some crises mentioned were personal or career crises that ministers had to face, but many were organizational or parishional in nature. Organizational crises involved congregational conflict or decline in attendance or giving or both. One preacher wrote, my worst crises are periods of discouragement when I don't know if the church will survive. Crises coming from parishioners included such things as discovering someone in the church had AIDS, was being abused, or had committed suicide. I just learned 
that the son of a family in the congregation raped the daughter of another family in the congregation, said one pastor. What do I do? Another said, we've had five church couples divorce in the past four years. Our congregation is reeling. A veteran minister once observed, if you're a Christian pastor, you're always in a crisis, either in the middle of one, coming out of one, or going into one. <laughs> well, obviously, the bigger the church, the more crises one must face, and I'm grateful for being in a smaller congregation. But anyone who ministers with people should be ready to face crises on a fairly regular basis, and that's not easy. It's a hardship, an emotional hardship, and a lot of preachers can't handle it. Too bad there aren't emotional boot camps where young preachers could go to learn how to be tough enough to do what needs to be done, yet open and sensitive and vulnerable enough to effectively work with people. A soldier must be ready to face hardships of all kinds. And if you're going to be involved in the life of your brothers and sisters, you've got to be ready for that as well. We share in joys. We share in hardships as soldiers. But that's not all Paul had to say about soldiers. He said, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. A soldier in active duty cannot be entangled in everyday affairs. The Roman code of Theodosius said, we forbid men engaged in military service to engage in civilian occupations. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul defended his right to be supported financially by asking who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. I think Paul opened the door here for a paid professional ministry. And few would deny that there is a need for some to be freed from secular concerns in order to work in the Lord's army full-time. That does not mean, however, that a full-time soldier must totally withdraw from all everyday affairs. I don't believe it means a minister must forego a family or community involvement or recreational pleasures. But it does mean he must be willing and able to give his full attention to the battle he's fighting when the battle demands it. He cannot get so entangled in those affairs that he's not available to meet the needs that arise in ministry. You know, Paul took on secular work when trying to reach a new community with the gospel. He didn't want to give anyone the idea that he was there to establish a flock he could then fleece. So he made tents, but he didn't, he didn't make tents to get rich. He didn't get entangled in the tent-making business. And those in the military must be able to put civilian concerns behind them. That's even true of weekend warriors. When duty calls, you can't say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. <laughs> right, Kristen? Yeah. And that must be true of all who would serve in the Lord's army. Those who volunteer to help others fight their spiritual battles. We must always keep the affairs of this world 
in a place of secondary importance. You know, Jesus made that clear, I think, in the parable of the sower, when he indicated that the worries, riches, and pleasures of this life can choke out a fruitful ministry like thorns in a field. We cannot let those things entangle us and choke out our effectiveness as soldiers in the kingdom. Now, again, that doesn't mean we can ignore our civilian responsibilities. If we've accepted them, we must meet them as best we can. We can't let our ministry become an excuse for not meeting our other responsibilities in life. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for declaring their income dedicated to God so they could ignore meeting family obligations. We've got to meet our obligations, and they have to be a high priority. But they must be something we can set aside momentarily if the battle demands it. And a soldier must keep himself in a position where he can do what his commander wants him to do when it needs to be done. Paul said a soldier must be able to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And a soldier not only pleases his commander by doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done, but by doing it without question or explanation. He does what he's commanded to do. He doesn't talk back or question the need to act or demand an explanation. He simply does what he's told. My dad used to talk about this. He was drafted in, into World War II. And just this last week when Matt was home, uh, we had the opportunity to actually watch uh, a newsreel that was produced that, that showed what my dad was doing in Angar when he got his Purple Heart. And dad was in his 30s when he was drafted. And we talked very little about warfare. But one thing he did say, he said, you know, they want young men in the army. They want idealistic men who, when, when the Sarge says, charge the hill, they're charging, not us old guys who say, whoa, not me. <laughs> but we're supposed to respond like those young soldiers to our commander without question, without explanation, without debating, without understanding why he's asked us to do what he orders us to do. We just do it. We just do it. If we call Jesus Lord... We do what he says, without question, without demanding an understanding of the reason behind our order. We just obey like a good soldier. So if we've enlisted in the Lord's army and he drafts no one, you remember, we enlisted. We better think of ourselves as soldiers and be willing to face hardships, avoid entanglements, and obey without question. Paul began with a picture of a soldier, but he went on to paint another. He made it clear we should also consider ourselves to be athletes. Verse 5. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Paul saw himself as an athlete, striving to win the prize. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, he wrote, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. 
And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. And I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He paints a picture of an athlete training to win a prize. Mark came into the office the other day all sweaty. He'd been training. He's going to be in tough mutter. When's that? Oh, boy, next week. All right, and are you the one that got him involved in that, Casey? Okay, all right. Well, one of you is going to win the prize, right? Oh, oh, Erica's going to win the prize. All right, all right. You know, I'm not a huge athlete. You all know that. Really? But there's a picture here we need to, to grab hold of. We've got to be willing to strive for victory. We really do. Now, we do have to be careful with this illustration because it can lead to some fundamental misunderstanding. You know, some have taken this to, to think it means we're competing for salvation, you know, we've got to run the race so we can win that prize of salvation. Well, the prize of salvation is not a prize. It's a gift, okay? Salvation isn't something we win or earn. It's a gift from God given by grace to those who could never do anything to deserve it. The prize is not salvation. So what is it? Well, Peter referred to it as an unfading crown of glory. And Jesus spoke of hearing the words, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master. I believe the prize is the praise of our Lord. I think that's the imperishable wreath we're to strive to win. Now that clears up one danger in the illustration, but there's another. And that's the idea of competition. When Paul says only one receives the prize, he's not suggesting that Christians and churches are in competition with each other. And there's only one prize available. Jesus isn't going to only praise one person in glory. When he says only one receives the prize in a race, he's simply encouraging us to run like an athlete who desperately wants to win the prize. He wants us to give it our all. He wants us to give it everything we've got. But even then, he tempers it by reminding us that we must play according to the rules. It's not victory at any price. There are rules to follow. There are standards to maintain. It would be better to lose a race than to win it and then be disqualified because we didn't play according to the rules. I think that happened where there were some issues this week in tennis, wasn't there? Uh, some complaining about rules and disqualification about rules with steroids and all that stuff. We hear all that. That's, it's crazy. You don't want that. You don't want that. So we cannot bow to unethical methods to take on the appearance of success. We can't sacrifice principle on the altar of pragmatism. And sad to say, ministers and even missionaries have been known to do so. I remember Jesse telling me years ago 
how sad it is in the mission field when a new missionary comes to the area and, and talks converts into joining their group so he can report back to his home office all these converts he made. You know, the devil works in churches and on mission fields. And he can, he can blind us to, to the importance of ethics in our ministry. We've got to be very careful about that. We live in a society where everybody is wanting to beat everybody else. That's not what Paul's encouraging here. Not encouraging that at all. Um, we can't let the pressure to succeed make us who are working for the Lord forget that he knows what we're doing and why we're doing it. He knows our motive. We've got to keep that in balance. Having said that, those who administer in the name of Christ must strive like disciplined and highly motivated athletes to win the prize of his good pleasure. Paul would have us be like soldiers, athletes, and farmers. He says the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Now, I'm sure you're aware that Jesus used agricultural illustrations often. He spoke of sowing the word of God and of the need to labor in the harvest. Paul considered himself and Apollos as fellow workers in God's field. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It's a good illustration, a good analogy. The, the agricultural image speaks of cooperation. And as James points out, the need for patience. James says, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. I must add, he must also be patient until the rains stop. The primary focus of Paul's reference to farmers is that farmers work hard. And having one for son-in-law, I can attest to that fact. The writer of Proverbs observed that a farmer cannot be a sluggard. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. I think the Hunleys have read that and they live by that. <laughs> we don't see, what is that, thistles and nettles? out there in your beans, do we? Because you got kids. <laughs> a farmer works hard and is rewarded for his work. In fact, Paul says he ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. And again, that can speak of the need for preachers 
to be paid. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? In spite of being compared to an ox, this is one of my favorite passages for obvious reasons. It also speaks of the hope of harvest that all who are laborers in God's field share. For aren't we all working to see others, including our loved ones, come into the kingdom? And aren't we all thrilled when someone responds to the gospel? To know we had a hand in planting in someone's heart or watering the seed, or cultivating it, brings us eternal joys that those not involved in the process never know. You know, we're all called to be involved in evangelism, but it's not so we can, can get a record of successes. It's so we can share the joy, knowing we had a hand in, in bringing someone to Christ. Maybe we taught them in Sunday school. Maybe we encouraged them in youth groups. Maybe we just gave them a hug at church. Maybe we sat down and cried with them. Maybe we prayed with them. Maybe we sat down with the scriptures. Whatever it is, whatever peace we had in that process, God used it to allow his spirit to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment and bring them into him. Isn't that a great joy to know you're part of that? That gives purpose to everything you do. You just want to be part of the process that has eternal consequences. And that's been given to us. We want to know we've had a part in it. It's like eating vegetables from your own garden or from the garden of a grandson. We like that sense of participation. So let's be hardworking farmers and disciplined athletes and obedient soldiers in the kingdom. And let's be motivated as they are as well. A soldier is upheld by thoughts of final victory. An athlete is upheld by visions of a crown. And a farmer is upheld by hope of a harvest. So let's commit ourselves to being God's soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Let's Commit ourselves to serving on the Lord's side. Again, like obedient soldiers, disciplined athletes, and hardworking farmers.